It's a window into a culture that has touched so many people. You know, and it's not just college radio, but independent radio and quirky commercial stations, the sights and sounds of these little communities, these places that people call home. I think that's probably what, what draws me to touring all these stations is I feel like so at home in a radio station. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel, and I'm one half of your hosting and production team. Eric Klein here, other half of the radio host and production team. <laughs> and on the line from San Francisco is Jennifer Waits, our uh, third half. Our third the half, best half. The best half of the Radio Survivor team. <laughs> Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thank you. And we're not going to delay here. We're not, we're not going to, we're not going to make <laughs> no you all wait because, uh, this is a very special episode. Um, it's a, it's a very special episode of Radio Survivor. Um, <laughs> because it's like an after school special. <laughs> it's like an after school special when, when Eric reveals that he, I've been smoking weed the whole time, <laughs> mom and dad. He has been completely stoned, uh, perpetually since we started the podcast. <laughs> I learned it from watching you. <laughs> Dad. Oh, your father and I need to have a talk. <laughs> no, it's a very special episode because it's the 100th station tour that Jennifer is writing up for Radio Survivor. 100 radio stations Jennifer has visited and not only just visited, but taken pictures, done interviews and documented for for all time, for posterity, uh, beginning on her website, Spinning Indie. Uh, and now for Radio Survivor. And, and, these, and these are special radio stations. These aren't any old radio stations. These are the sorts of radio stations that are smaller and yes. that are often uh, the not the most exciting radio station in any city or largest radio station in any city. And so that's why uh, more often than not, the people that Jennifer contacts tell, tell her, you know, there's nothing here to see. <laughs> To which Jennifer always has to explain to them how special and important their stations really are to her. College well, stations, and they, community and they stations. they are the, the most exciting station in the city. I right. have to make a correction there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, because these are where, where you have uh, often a staff of more than three uh, people, which is what <laughs> too many commercial stations look like now. Often dozens and dozens of volunteer programmers and from students to senior citizens to uh, all sorts of community members, uh, faculty uh, who, who staff up these stations. And today uh, you're revealing number 100 in your tour and that station is. Oh my God. I've been keeping a secret for so long. I, I'm, I'm afraid to even utter the letters. <laughs> Why did you choose this one as the 100th one? Maybe we could build up to that. Oh, yes. Well, when on our last podcast – we talked about number 50 and how that was sort of an epic project because I'd visited the station a few times and delved into the history. Um, and so for number 100, I was also thinking that there should be some history involved. And so that's part of the reason that I chose this station because it recently celebrated a significant anniversary um, and also has a history exhibit taking place right now. And with that said, do I reveal? Should so, I reveal? What is the anniversary? 
Uh, the 75th anniversary. 75 years on the air, this station. Uh, we'll, we'll narrow in. We'll, we'll sort of take the big Zoom view. So you were. this is on the East Coast, correct? You were on the East Coast tour. Yes. And you traveled there via train from what major city? <laughs> yes. I took the train from New York City. About how long visit, did it take? To visit this station. Oh, See, now I can't remember. And it, <laughs> okay. It's a college although I, station. Although it, I looked at the schedules and it varied by time of day. Well, of course, so yeah. I took get, an express, more of an express So train. lots of trains run there. It's within commuting distance for some people from New York City. Yes. It's at a college. Yes. Um, is this a new college, an old college? It is an old ivy-covered college. Old ivy-covered college. <laughs> covered college within commuting distance of New York City, but not in New York City. How, how are those old Ivy-covered colleges generally doing with their college radio? Because that's that's actually a really interesting idea that I don't think we've ever talked about. Like, is there is there a consistency the way that, you know, the UC system has a sort of consistency with its college radio? Well, I mean, the UC system is under the same yeah. ownership. So that's a bit different than the Ivy League, which is a bunch of independent institutions um, Older I've, o- I've only been to three Ivy League college radio stations, so I have sort of a small sample. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all of the stations I've visited in the Ivy League have been interesting, um, and I would like to visit more. There, There's one thing in common where a number of them actually have commercial licenses, including the one I visited. Aha. So they're not in the left end of the dial. They're north of 92 megahertz, which is perfectly appropriate. You may, I mean, a nonprofit institution can own a commercial license and they're not required to air commercials. Although if they are north of 92, they may air commercials. Hmm. Uh, that is, is completely okay, that, but it's up to them. It's up to their choice whether they do so or not. But it also tends to make those frequencies even more valuable. Yeah, so that they're even uh, in the event of uh, someone snooping around for a frequency, they the, they would bring even more money than those south of ninety two. So we we were in we're an Ivy League institution uh, within a, a short train ride of New York City. Uh, I think uh, people are probably got got a few ideas. You know, there's another one not too far away. So maybe we can say what state you're in. New Jersey. My uh, my my home state. Where I grew up, New Jersey, I think. Okay, we'll do the big reveal. Oh, and, and another hint. I believe I passed your college radio alma mater on the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul. Yes, you might have. You you very well might have crossed it on the train. I can't remember what the train route is like. But you, you probably passed through the great city of Trenton. Yes. Uh, oh, and I have another hint. When I was in college, we were very – I went to college um, near Philadelphia, which is also not far – and we always talked about um, how we were intrigued because Brooke Shields was a student at this <laughs> university when I was in college. Yeah, very famously, she took time off from her acting career to uh, to get herself a four-year degree because she was a teen star. Yes. I have no idea if she was involved with the radio station. I, I should have asked that question. Oh, mm. darn it. Wow. So people are probably have – especially folks who uh, – Generation X uh, who, might, who might have been kids in the, uh, in the 80s are starting to, 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 I think, get an idea of what station we're talking about. Where, where are we? Where, where, where were you? 
We are at WPRB at Princeton University. WPRB. And, yeah, and actually, so the station is is owned by an outside nonprofit. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Yeah, the Princeton Broadcasting Service, I mm. believe, is the um, correct title. So, yeah, it's um, you know it's largely alum alumni trustees who are on the board of this outside nonprofit, and it's a student run station. But it is not – the license is not held by Princeton University. So it's a, an outside nonprofit running a commercial FM college radio station. Wow. Okay. And so you were there um, as they're celebrating their 75th anniversary on the air. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I mean, they, they had some special displays around, uh, around that anniversary, right? Yeah. And that's actually a big – Part of the reason why I wanted to make sure to get to this station when I did, um, they have a history exhibit that is continuing through, I think, June 11th. So they just extended it a little bit. Um, so I wanted to get this. I wanted to visit the station and also get my tour posted before the exhibit closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an exhibit that the Princeton Station's educational advisor, Mike Lupica, um, he actually toured me around the exhibit and the station. So he put together this exhibit with help from various folks, and it celebrates the 75 years of radio at Princeton, which started in a student's dorm room in 1940. In so, a dorm room? When it was yes. on FM then, or was it AM? No, no. So in 1940, it was a carrier current campus-only station. And so in that exhibit, uh, was there anything really big there <laughs> there was uh, yeah mike was joking about the tank of a board i think it was a gates board so you're so, talking about a, you're talking about a, a broadcast mixing board yeah they had this huge board that a former station volunteer who i think he had volunteered at the station when he was in high school even um a long time ago and and he had rescued this board out of the dumpster like decades ago and apparently he he came up to some folks from the station at a station event and told them that he had this board. And so uh, they got the board for this exhibit. But it's just this humongous metal piece of equipment. I'm imagining like 1950s era electronics. Could be. Built yeah. to last. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, it had interesting notes in it. And I was notes, told. Like, like people had written on it? You know, like details about um, maybe some of the part, some of the components that might not work. Okay. You know, like, like little. Because um, you just didn't go out and replace these things willy nilly. Right. And and so this is the station's old board. At some point, it got replaced. Yeah. And it just got dumpstered. Yeah. And but, <laughs> but so give us a sense. You you call it the tank, right? Right. So I mean, uh, is it? Bigger than a bread box. <laughs> it's smaller, uh, than, yeah. smaller than a Volkswagen. <laughs> I mean, it's like the size of a small child, I would think. Um, or even, I mean, it could even be the size of a 10-year-old. Wow, okay. Um, but it's, you know, it was on its side, so. And made out of metal, so it probably weighs twice or three times what a child would weigh. 
and apparently <laughs> I was told that it reeked of uh, marijuana. <laughs> oh, marijuana. I was, my guess was cigarette smoke. Yeah, I remember back when they let you smoke in the in the studios, yeah. but uh, it's reeked of marijuana. So it might, must have been uh, retrieved somewhere in the, in the 60s, it sounds like, or early I don't 70s. Know. Um, well, anytime, really. Um, but, <laughs> but apparently they've had a number of events where alums have come back to this exhibit and apparently um, – during some of these receptions, people have gone up to the board and, and flipped the dials. You know, it, it was just like instinctive that they wanted mm. to touch and manipulate um, this piece of equipment that was so familiar to them. Oh, so it is those big old rotary dials. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think when most people now think of a, a, a sort of mixing board, they think of the sliders, right? That's the more uh, modern. But I learned on a board, an RCA board in college, which probably Pots. was a 60 60- – 60s vintage, uh, which big, big, big round dials big that pots, you turn huh? back and forth. And yeah, there's a certain satisfaction to manipulating uh, something like that compared to these little dinky sliders we use now. Yeah. And that's um, same with when I was in college, we had we had those dials and it was pretty great. And, and you would hear a clicking sound. Um, yeah, everything very mechanical. So you knew when it was engaged. Yeah. Yeah. So that was definitely a sight. Um, a sight to a, behold. <laughs> a sight to behold. And, and was there anything else, any, anything you learned from that exhibit that, uh, that was particularly interesting, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, stands out about WPRB? Oh, there was a lot of cool stuff. They had um, – it wasn't necessarily arranged chronologically. They had sort of thematic exhibits. So in some cases they had – albums from various eras in one case they had a bunch of promotional items like an old w so the original call letters when it was a carrier current station um it was wpru and there was an old wpru ashtray you know back to our (laughs) previous comment about you know if you look at old pictures of radio stations you see people smoking right and left um so there was an old ashtray um there was this magazine article that I had heard references to previously about it was from the early 1940s from the Saturday Evening Post, and it was a whole article about campus only broadcasting. Um, they called them radiator pipe networks at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool to see that article that was sort of lore to me. Um, there were some great photos. There were some fan letters. So that was fun to see. And um, Oh, and they had these studio notebooks from the station. And, you know, I remember having these at various stations that I've DJed at. Um, you know, it's like a spiral brown notebook that was left in the studio. And DJs would write down all kinds of things, like if equipment was broken, but they'd also write their thoughts about some of the music in the library, like a log, yeah, yeah. logbook. Anything stand out to you? Any, any? Did you did you scribble down any entries? Well, it was in a case, so we couldn't really see what hmm. was in it. Uh-huh. It was like, oh, I wish I could look in there. Um, but it was more so. It sort of brought back this flashback that I hadn't really thought about in a while. That I remember using notebooks like this. So I think it was a pretty common activity. Um, 
pre-email yeah. before every before there was an email list connecting everybody up in the station. How else were you going to uh, communicate, right, and make sure that people knew that uh, Turntable One, the left channel is out, or you know, or who stole that record or something like that. Exactly. So Jennifer, yeah, it looks like some of them are from the '90s that they had on display. Jennifer, you were telling us that uh, you were given a tour of the station by the by the individual that put together this exhibit, Mike Mike Lupica. Did you happen yeah. to talk to him about about what did he what what was his uh, driving inspiration for putting together the exhibit? Oh, <laughs> well, um, it's. Uh, it feels weird saying it, but I was part of the inspiration. Um, I met Mike Lapika at this conference, or it was actually a like a full day seminar that was at University of Maryland that was all about college radio and college radio history. Mm-hmm. And he attended that and was inspired by not only what we talk about, talked about and what we presented, but also an exhibit that Laura Schnicker at University of Maryland had put together about the history of college radio at University of Maryland. So that day inspired him to put together a history exhibit at Princeton. And he also knew that they were approaching this significant right. anniversary. Tell so the combination of those two things. Ah, well, tell us about that day a little bit then, because... I mean, what I'm driving at right now is this idea that um, college, the history of college radio in the United States is, I, I was listening to last week, I, I used the metaphor, sort of an underwatered tree. It's not necessarily being paid attention to as much as, as, um, as other things, as other histories. And, and it's something that you've devoted um, a huge amount of your passion towards. And so I like... Uh, I think it's time to sort of um, expand on that. Yeah, well, it was um, it was actually called. Um, oh, now I'm trying to remember. Saving College Radio and saving in the sense of yeah, preserving. Um, so the Saving College Radio Symposium happened at University of Maryland, and so um, I gave the keynote presentation at the beginning, talking about the overall history of college radio, and then there were other presenters who talked about different aspects of radio history and then different aspects of preservation. And, and Laura Schnicker uh, was a volunteer at WMUC at University of Maryland, but is also an archivist. Um, and, and so she, when she spent time at WMUC at University of Maryland, she spotted all these things that she knew should be in the archives and should be preserved. So, it's largely due to her efforts that a bunch of this great material ended up in their, in their archives. And then she was able to do a whole exhibit surrounding it. And now Laura and I are the co-chairs of the college community and educational radio task force on, or uh, of the college community and educational radio caucus on the radio preservation task force. So there are a bunch of things that it's sort are sort of building, I guess, you know, every year, there are more and more efforts um, where people are coming together focused on the history of college radio. So, so for me, it's really inspiring to see other people being inspired by this work to do their own history projects. And I think I me- I've mentioned perhaps on the podcast before that Mike Lupica also helped put together a, an online 
WPRB history page. Um, that's kind of a blog format where they keep sharing bits of WPRB history, including anecdotes from alums um, and audio clips and photos. And it's this really um, great example of how anybody can put together a history website, even if you don't know the entire history of your station. Yeah, you, you, start, you start with the... You start small. You start with yeah. one blog post at a time. Yeah, and I love that. I think, um, you know, if every station started doing something like that, it's just way less intimidating than trying to piece together the whole history at once. So, yeah. So, yeah it's, it's gone great. viral. It, you know, it sounds like what we have here is is a situation uh, where, where your sort of dogged enthusiasm – uh, and and sharing it right because that's the important part is that it's not you're not scribbling this into notebooks that you're that you're now putting onto the shelf right these aren't pictures that are in your iPhoto library but that never get shared you've been sharing them and now you found a, you know like minded folks like at the University of Maryland which then bring other people into the fold who who get inspired to go off and, and do the same thing and somebody I hope is going to see this WPRB exhibit either there at uh, Princeton University or is going to see the online exhibit and think, oh my gosh, I can start there. And a blog, right, I think sounds so much more doable because you could just start with the, here's what we know. And and, and and then what tends to happen and people crawl out of the woodwork and they go, right. oh, wait, uh, or they crawl out of the dumpster and go, wait, here is a, uh, here is That's a, right. <laughs> a several hundred pound uh, thing. Right. Uh, Nobody cared about this when it was getting thrown away, but I love this radio station and I cared about yeah. it. Isn't it nice now that I can connect it to to a community of people who care about the history of of college radio and radio stations exactly and so so Jennifer, so why did you choose WPRB to be number one hundred? Well, I mean, it's for all those reasons. I thought I wanted to have a station that had an interesting story, had an interesting history. and since it had just celebrated its seventy fifth, I thought that would be cool. Um, and the timing was right too, because I was, I was getting, I mean, I'm pretty much writing these stations in order. So, um, order as you visit them, as you visit them, because, because you're, you don't have a master plan. I think we should, we should sort of reveal this little part. Uh, you know, you, you don't, you don't have like this, uh, massive grant or, or travel budget. You're, you're not going on a, a nationwide tour. You travel. And uh, for all sorts of reasons, and then you look where you're going to be, and you figure out where the station catch as catch in can. some kind of radius. And so you were on an, you were on the East Coast uh, for the uh, Radio Task Preservation Task Force conference, and uh, I think, and then you were looking around in, in various places in the East Coast that you could visit. So this yeah. this was lucky that this came up in 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 that uh, in that order. And it was um, yeah, it was on my radar. I mean, last fall. I was sort of mapping out where I was um, with my tours, and then I kind of knew what an idea of what my travel plans might be in the in the beginning part of the year. So, so I think you know a few months ahead of time, I was thinking this is probably going to be a hundred, mm-hmm. and that's probably going to work out. Um, so there's a little bit of strategizing. I mean, it actually takes quite a bit of logistical work for me to figure out um, how to see as many stations as I do in a very yes. compact period of time. 
So, so it there is some strategy behind it. Of course. Um, and and in fact, on that trip, I I ended up getting waylaid by a freak medical emergency. So I missed touring three stations that I had planned oh. to visit. <laughs> oh, so we're really really lucky that you made it to WPRB. And it, and I know. I know before I was before I was sidelined. Yeah, I think yeah. days later I was in the ER. Oh. So WPRB is a station I know. So you alluded to it earlier that uh I went to college in Trenton, New Jersey, um at a school formerly called Trenton State College, now called um the College of New Jersey. And uh my introduction to college radio was WTSR, uh which um at 91.3 FM, still on the air, uh, 1500 watts, which gives it, uh, which puts it uh, fairly high in terms of wattage, in terms of uh, college radio stations in New Jersey, uh, in part because it's such a crowded metro- metroplex between Philadelphia and New York City. And uh, we had sort of always a sort of a, a, a cordial relationship with WPRB. I mean, nothing formal. But, you know, I know that sometimes our music, the music directors would talk to each other um, between the two stations. And it was not uncommon that uh, if you were staying the summer in Trenton uh, and you were someone at WTSR, often you would take shifts at WPRB. Uh, oh, cool. Because Trenton State uh, tended to pull mostly from students in New Jersey or kind of the Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware area. Uh, Princeton, being a Ivy League private school, tended to pull students from all over the country, if not all over the world. And so many more students left during the summer. And, and so uh, many more uh, kids who did uh, radio at WTSR uh, were around during the summer and they would help out. Um, I never did, but I, I knew many people who did. And I was a listener. I was a listener to WPRB. Um, Trenton and Princeton are very close. And so we'd often go to Princeton because they had a couple of good music clubs, a really great uh, record store called the Princeton Record Exchange, restaurants, bookstores, things like what that. What are they doing today? And they're still there. Ah, okay, good. They're yeah, still I, there. I went there. That was part of my tour, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Yeah. it's it's. I saw the history exhibit, and then we went and saw Princeton Record Exchange and had lunch. Yeah, and then went back and saw the station. Wow. Re- record stores in urban areas are probably uh, more rare now than radio stations, the, commer- the non-commercial Well, actually, stations. no, you were wrong. The number yeah. of record stores has actually gone up. Oh, good. I just in saw. I just saw years. a sad article about um, a beloved. Oh, other uh, music in in New York City. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's yeah. it's it's what places urban areas with where there's you know skyrocketing rents. Um, That's not everywhere. It's not everywhere, actually. <laughs> it's everywhere. Well, even, not everywhere is Portland or San Francisco, Eric. I hate to tell you. But he, <laughs> not even everywhere in, is everywhere I've ever lived. Yeah. Well, even in San Francisco, we have some new record stores that are new within the past year. So. Yeah. Oh, good. Same thing here in Portland. Uh, several have opened up in the last year. Right. But uh, that aside, that um, aside. As, as a listener to WPRB um, and knowing it was a college station – um, when I was in college, what struck me about it was the fact that they split their broadcast day. And so part of the day is classical and jazz. And so if I tried to listen during the morning, at the time, I didn't particularly care for either of those genres. I was disappointed. <laughs> it wasn't anything I wanted to listen to. Uh, although our my college radio advisor didn't really love the music that we played at WTSR. So he was a big PRB listener <laughs> in the morning. If I went to his office, ah, he would gave, be listening to WPRB. It gave the community of radio listeners a uh, – Yeah. 
he would be uh, listening to their classical and jazz two programming. Two sides of the dial there. And uh, told me he didn't listen to WPRB in the evening, which is when I wanted to listen. And so uh, I, I found it to be very interesting. It's unusual. Symbiosis. Uh, did you learn anything about about that divide while you were there? Did, did, did that get yeah. discussed? Well, so they still do classical programming generally between 6 and 11 a.m. Um, mm. The jazz uh, block that you're talking about is – there's some vestiges of that, but it's not the way it was maybe when you were there. Mm. Um, things are a bit a bit more mixed up in the schedule. Um, but yeah, apparently, you know, that was those were sort of the heritage blocks of programming at the station, which, you know, is not unusual. I've been to other stations that have had blocks of classical or jazz. Um, and and even in college radio, classical has a long history. It was often billed as like radio to study by. Um, <laughs> but it, it sounds like the classical programming um, is pretty diverse at WPRB, and so you know DJs are playing some more out there stuff. Um, I was shown a part of the library called Arcana, um, which was the name of a show that used to air on WPRB. That's like more experimental contemporary composers, um, um, more difficult listening. So there, there's been more of that sort of transition with the classical programming. And also a lot of DJs throughout the schedule are playing classical here and there. Hmm. Um, so it, it's much more, you know, there's this freeform ethos to the station. So there, there are plenty of shows where you can hear all kinds of music across a variety of genres. Um, but you'll hear classical of some sort in the morning. That's interesting. And, and this sounds like the kind of classical station that uh, Matthew Lassar, our colleague at Radio Survivor, would like. Uh, yes. He often writes critically about how, you know, classical radio just plays the hits, so to speak. You know, yeah. it's a lot of Beethoven, Brahms and Bach and Mozart. Look for his high brow hybrid 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 because he talks about how you know it's sort of a moribund format it's just and and often not only do they not only play the hits but they often only play like the most well-known movement from from uh well-known things and he loves to see when stations experiment and it sounds like that even the the classical programming then even if it is sort of bounded to what we call classical music. Um, it's sort of freeform in its ethos. It's not, you know, we have to wedge in uh, Beethoven's fifth every, uh, every third day or something like that. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of freedom in the classical programming. Hmm. Um, and, and that's unusual. Is- that seems unusual to me because it seems that when I've encountered classical programming, even on sort of a college stations where it's a block, like a heavy block, as opposed to like they just have one classical show, yeah. it tends to be much much tighter. Whether it's I don't know whether it's just the DJs sort of pl- giving the people what they want, or whether it's because of other sorts of rules, it it seems not to be as broad as it seems to be a PRB. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to learn more about that. Um- the Harvard Station, um, they also do some pretty adventurous classical music mm. programming, um, which I pointed out to our Matthew Lazar as well, because I know, you know, he's always on the lookout for yeah. interesting classical stations. 
Um, and, and there's relative peace there. So, so, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, I've seen in stations that, that divide up their programming day. Sometimes there's a little bit of tension there. Uh, you know, often sometimes the, the free form rock kids would like to have more time and, and sort of the people doing classical music feel like they need to need to guard the, their boundary and not lose any time. Um, do you get a sense that it's a pretty happy, uh, uh state of affairs there, PRB? It's yeah, it seems like it. Um, you know, I met a lot of DJs when I was there and and they were pointing out we we spent some time in the record library and they were pointing out all kinds of things from the classical section to, you know, rock records. Were these student um, DJs you were talking to mostly? Yeah. Do they have yeah. community volunteers? Yeah, they do. Um it's a real mixture there. Um but I think everybody I met was a student actually. Um, which is pretty cool. And a lot of them were student leaders at the station. So I met the programming director and a couple of the music directors, as well as some DJs. So even with this uh, bringing community volunteers, I'm going to guess probably a lot of the classical programming is done by community volunteers. I don't know if that's right. Um, I'm not sure. Um, You know, there was a student when I was there who was talking to me about the classical library. So there there were certainly students who were into it. That's very cool. So, but it sounds like nevertheless, it's student run. um, And and so they are invested in, in, in this approach, which, you know, I, so when I was in Trenton, we should reveal was in the early nineties and we're now, you know, coming uh, 30 or 20 some years later and the station's programming sounds like it's, I mean, you know, it's not the exact same programs, but it sounds like the mix and the general uh, approach has stayed relatively the same. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mike said that the station has gotten more free form over the last few years. Hmm. Um, and there's, there's more encouragement to play a variety of genres. Um, so although there are some specialty shows, there are a lot of shows where you're going to hear a variety of things. And even when I was there, I, I was hanging out in the studio and the DJ on the air was playing electronic music and international music, uh, you know, just like a wide variety of stuff. And actually it was very familiar to me. It seemed very much like KFJC where I DJ. Mm-hmm. At Foothills College in California. Foothill, singular. Oh, Foothill. I'm sorry. <laughs> Foothill College in yes. California. And um, and so uh, it's a, a commercial frequency. Is it 103.3 FM? Do I remember it that is. correctly? Wow. Yes, 103.3. I can remember phone numbers. I can remember frequencies and call letters, but I can remember nothing else. Just, just ask <laughs> my wife. Um, and so uh, do they air commercials? I don't remember. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't think they do actually. Um, you know, they can, if they want to, but you know, they do on air fundraisers. Um, and I'm not sure if they do underwriting. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I've been to a handful of college radio stations that have commercial licenses and I think in a way it just sort of frees them up. Um, right. As far as certain things that they can or can't say on the air, but it doesn't mean they are airing commercials necessarily. Right. They don't have to worry as much about, uh, and what you mean by the freeze them up is that, uh, even if you're not running commercials, you have to be a little careful about what you promote on air. You can't, uh, you can't be promoting something for which the stations receive compensation. Right. Um, even if it's not a strict commercial, that it sounds like a 32nd commercial, uh, whereas commercial stations have no such restrictions. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't hear any commercials when I was there. So. Yeah. I don't remember there being any, but I, you know, things can change and, um, you know, you never you never know what's going to happen. So, is there anything else you know at WPRB that really stood out to you that was that was interesting or a little different or uh, makes it you know sort of stand out compared to other college stations? Well, I mean, the fact that they have a commercial license is pretty interesting. Um, they had a great record library. It was really fun poking around in there. Um, I was there right before they were about to do a vinyl only week. Hmm. Um, and so they were very excited about that, and they were going to unplug the CD players. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was going to be by force. <laughs> you yeah. will play vital. <laughs> and the students were really enthusiastic, um, and it sounds like they have a new mandate where new DJs can't play digital music, I think, from their collections the first semester, maybe, they have, that they're on they the have air. To get, they oh. have to get uh, used to old DJ techniques before they go. They have to learn yeah. how to use CDs and, and vinyl from apparently probably from the collection there how's, at the station. How's the yeah. library? Do they have a, a nice, uh, a vinyl? Yeah, they've got a big library. Um, and even, so I was talking to DJs where that policy wasn't in place when they started and they said, you know, people would just fall back on stuff that they knew and wouldn't get to know the library. Right. So they were actually very strongly, promoting the new system which i thought was interesting like so so getting getting new people to learn how to dig through yeah a shelf which is which is i guess now um a little bit like a card catalog from my youth you know it's <laughs> it's a little bit obsolete but there's something tactile i think it's um i think it's intimidating for people who uh you know younger people the, the way age, yeah. they organize music and think about music it's sort it's by more date. virtual. <laughs> sort, so. sort by name. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. like this. So it's intimidating for them to look at, you know, a a room full of records or CDs. Mm. I like this approach because I think for so many uh, college and community stations, one of the the barriers for new people getting involved, right, is that they want to play things they know, and often that is like pop music or maybe even more sort of commercial, well-known indie, so-called indie rock. And that often is the music that, that the uh, college or community station wants to sort of steer away from, right? Because they're looking to promote artists who are lesser known and genres that are lesser known. And sometimes that can be affected in a way that's a little bit exclusionary. You know, you can get told that your music taste sucks. Um, and certainly when I was in college, right, someone would come in with their own CDs because we didn't have iPods or MP3s or anything like that um, and play that stuff. And, yeah. and, and it, it seems reminds to be, me also it can get into a bit of a um, uh, diversity problem. Right. It, 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 everything right, starts you know, to sound the same. Yeah. yeah. And, and I like this approach. Uh, of saying, well, no, your first semester, like not making an outright ban, right? But your first semester, when you're first getting on air, that you have to pull from the library and saying you won't use Go your- Go find something you like in there. In the library, because yeah. it's probably likely that a, a, a very small minority of the new students coming in have CDs or vinyl. I suspect some of them do, right? Um, because they, they go to shows or, uh, you know, vinyl is now going up in sales. So I'm sure some do, but probably the majority or maybe a lot of them never just don't carry it to college for their first semester because it's too much to, to tote around. And they probably don't have turntables in, in their uh, dorm rooms. I, I like this because it's a bit more, right? It, it, it's a bit more, it opens up a world rather than, than closes a door. So I really like hearing that. And I, I love hearing that they're going to do this uh, they did a vinyl only week at that point and unplugged the CD I know. Players. It was great. 
Um, oh, and I'm just thinking about some other things I saw that were kind of fun. Um, in the studio, there was a cross stitch. And, and this is actually the second time I've seen a cross stitch at a radio station. <laughs> um, and it, it said, home is where the transmitter is. Mm-hmm. Yes. It had a lovely little cross stitch. Did um, you get a photo of that? I did. Yeah, it's in my... It's in my report that's going to go up today. So, right. So, as you listen, <laughs> so folks who are listening can go to radiosurvivor.com. It'll be right on the front page. It'll be uh, photos of all this stuff. Right. And, as well as and links, Jennifer's write-up. Links to the WPRB uh, history website, website yeah. which is – I've been flipping through it and it looks – uh, that's that's a hole that I'm looking forward to falling down because yeah. oh, it's organized it's by decade. And wow. so you could look at the 90s, you could look at the 80s, you can look at the 50s. I'm going to go look at the 90s because, yeah. you know, we're all just yep. uh, self-interested and I want to see what was going on there when yep. I was a listener uh, down the road in Trenton. It's quite an amazing uh, Yeah, there's some great site. stories on there. And, you know, they have a lot of cool stuff yet to be uh, – processed yeah. and when i was there i also saw a big old wall full of reel to reel tapes that they're working mm. on digitizing wow um, oh, including princeton. some good job princeton i know including some that were from a a student's radio documentary about woodstock oh, wow. so like he went there with a tape recorder and tape recorded interviews with people at woodstock very cool um, so yeah there's a lot that's that that's going to be quite an amazing uh, project when it's finished, even when it's halfway done, it'll be an amazing project. Yeah. Um, so Jennifer, I want to sort of step back a little bit here uh, as we've hit number 100 and a couple, couple episodes ago, number 98, we talked a little bit about, you know, why you do these tours and a little bit about the run up here to number 100. But I, I, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about seeing so many radio stations because I, 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 there's a very few people who've been yeah, to so many radio unique stations. Privilege, and you know, in particular, there's probably even fewer who have been to so many college and community stations, right? Uh, right. Maybe there's a couple people, you know, maybe who have worked with like the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, or maybe people who work for like College Broadcasters Inc. who've who've gone around and helped out a lot of stations over the years. But the, you know, I, I'm going to guess we could touring probably, bands also. I yeah, always touring think bands. Touring but they've probably even been to a hundred, right? <laughs> I, even any given band probably hasn't been to a hundred. So the number of people who've been to a hundred stations, we could probably fit in one room. Maybe even you know, the podcast studio here. Um, so, Certainly nobody has written about this many stations. No, not at all. I know, I know. I really think it's like time to uh, kickstart a book out of this, a great big coffee table book. Um, but Yes, uh, I am I am quite interested in a book deal. So if anyone has any dates <laughs> on agents or <laughs> well, we just kickstart it. We well, just, okay, I think I think I can short circuit Paul's question. Uh, pitch the book. Oh, pitch the book. Yeah, let's hear uh, it. I know it's hard. There's so many books, but but yeah, I mean, the book so far would be about the hundred stations I've visited already. But why? So so, but the pitch here, right? So to pitch it to me, right? Pretend I'm a I own a bookstore, right? And so you're going to want me to carry this book, put it on a shelf, or better yet, put it on an end cap, put it on a display, right? Like how how are we going to sell this this book to somebody who's just walking by? So not so we don't know that they're interested in college radio, but looking at this book, they go, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know I need to buy this." How do you pitch that? What's that? What's that pitch? Ah, uh, um, well, it's you know, it's it's kind of a window into a culture that has probably touched so many people. Um, 
you know, and it's not just college radio, but independent radio and quirky commercial stations, um, the sights and sounds of these little communities, um, these little, these places that people call home. I think that's probably what, what draws me to touring all these stations is I feel like I'm at home a lot of the time because I'm, I'm so at home in a radio station. And what's the so larger I, cultural influence then? So, so that's sort of like, uh, right. And, and I think that's great. It's people's yeah. lives, right? So what's the larger cultural influence? How would, how would these stations, if I've never listened to them, how could they have possibly impacted my life, but I don't know it. Right. Um, well, so a subset of the stations that I visited, a large subset um, are independent stations so we're looking at alternative culture, um, so stations that are made up of people who are influencing the music industry and popular culture. And how, how does that happen? I mean, you know, so, I mean, I'm sitting here and I go, well, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm not in an alternative culture, right? I mean, I listen to my local rock station. I like it well enough, whatever. Um, and I make a Pandora station that's, uh, you know, and it, it's got like some Pearl Jam and some Soundgarden and some Led Zeppelin in it. Um, I'm from the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm 40 years old. And I and I'm and so my music taste got solidified in the year right. 2000, you know, uh, but but, you know, I can remember being in college. Right. You know, and I, I've got, you know, I've got some love and I remember being really excited about music in like maybe the year 2000 or 1995. Uh, how, how do you pitch that to me? How is this? How has this possibly been an influence in my life? <laughs> well, I think a lot of, you know, again, I have to preface because I've been to a lot of different kinds of stations. But if I'm just talking about college radio stations, um, college radio stations have had an influence on the music you hear on mainstream radio, um, on artists that have become huge. College radio stations have had an influence on the technology of radio. Hmm. So they were some of the first to transmit their signals online. They were some of the first to have websites, even um, probably some of the first to be some of the first radio stations to be blogging and right. um, presenting video and podcasts. Um, so, you know, there's a lot college radio stations, I think have been innovators in a lot of different ways, not just in music, but also in technology. So that's something that gets overlooked and, is worthy of exploring. And then, you know, on top of all that, there's just a lot of fun stuff in stations. And there's so. good pictures, right? I mean, you know. Yeah. So I've been sort of like an anthropologist. You know, it's essentially like I'm doing ethnographies of every station that I visit. So, you know, which is participant observer research right. where, you know, I'm going in, taking pictures and, um, you know, and then sometimes writing up whimsical posts about, you know, here are a bunch of stinky couches that I've seen at radio stations, <laughs> right. or here are a bunch of skulls that I've seen at radio stations. Um, oh, and here's that Leo Blaze sign. Right. The skulls I, are, are, are sort of the more frightening part. But so, so the end cap <laughs> I'm imagining for your book, right? I'm imagining walking into a great independent bookstore, even a Barnes and Noble, right? And I see, uh, you know, there, there's like a book of like, uh, you know, I've seen a bunch of like books that are sort of picture books, but also, you know, 
coffee table books about like like punk flyers, like punk rock mm-hmm. flyers, which are all mimeographed or, or, or mimeographed. <laughs> that would be the 1960s. Uh, no, well, but photocopied, uh, you know, and, you know, from the like the late 70s and early 80s. Public school in the 80s. Yeah. And, 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 and one, <laughs> I remember seeing a book that was all. Ditto machines before Ditto that. Machines. That's right. Punk, uh, the pictures of punk houses or, or anarchist oh, yeah. houses, you know, sort of in between sort of squat and actually rented places. And then we have this and we sort of, it, it, right, it's this anthropological yeah. look, uh, ethnography of a particular culture. It's been influential and, and in many ways, I think, sits in the middle, right? Because college radio was often, you know, play, the only place you could hear punk in particular on the radio right. and, and other sort of insurgent kind of underground music well, types. I know that in the 80s and, yeah, in the 80s and 90s when commercial radio was a very specific genre uh, and sound that that it was college radio is where all of the other music uh was was discoverable and so that's where you have alternative as a category at all now as well as hip-hop right and when yeah we called our station the alternative it's probably really hard for it's probably really hard for someone (laughs) who might be a millennial to to grok to to understand just how just how marginalized something like hip hop was because now hip hop is the dominant musical form. Right. But in the, especially in the eighties, uh, you would not have heard hip hop on the radio unless you lived in a cool city where there was a great college or, or well, and it's not entirely correct. It depends. Yeah. If you lived outside New York city, like I did, hip hop was on commercial radio. Yeah, and- I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the dust brothers and their, and their radio show on right. in the eighties in, in Los Angeles, where that was the first hip hop yeah, radio outside show. of outside of places that weren't uh, two hundred miles from the Bronx. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but I was also thinking though that college. It's interesting because it also brought together these cultures uh, in in a different way. Because you know the fact that the station would play hip hop and punk, right, right, alongside other musics, and you know they're attached to places of learning, right? That so where where ostensibly we hope that at least some percentage of the students who go to any college are there to expand their horizons, learn, grow their minds, grow their cultural experience and that they do that like we're privy to that exploration happening online, right? It is happening right then and there. Um even though uh, a college like Princeton might be actually, you know, physically separate from any actual punk scene or punk clubs mm-hmm. in terms of its geography, um, in addition to being separate from hip hop clubs or places where any live uh, rapping was happening in the day. But my guess is, nevertheless, the music came together. And in some cases, probably the artists came together, you know, hopped on the train from New York City or Philadelphia and went to Princeton or went to Trenton. And I know that came to Trenton uh, while I was there. And, and so that it, it, it serves as this sort of tying up point, it seems like, of a lot of different oh, yeah. threads. I, I want to hear- college radio stations definitely were like this network where – you know, artists in the riot girl scene or in the punk scene or in the hip hop scene would, you know, travel from station to station. And, you know, this is before we had things like, you know, the internet or international, um, you know, websites that, that brought together music from all over the country. So there was, it was just much more grassroots. Right. There was a zine, uh, that was published, uh, regularly, in the, in the 80s and 90s called Book Your Own Effing Life. And it was a guide for, you know, indie bands, independent bands 
to how they could book their tours across the, the, the country. So they didn't we, use the word effing, did they? I used the word yeah, effing, Yeah, okay, yes. just checking. <laughs> just in case you're We're Googling. We're still keeping our family-friendly. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 oh, of course, uh, just in case you're Googling, though. Yeah, and it would list out, right, of course, clubs, promoters, and right. often – uh, you know, unofficial places. So houses that would host shows or, and, and often it was colleges where, that would host shows. And if it wasn't even like in, in a big performance space, often it was like dorm lounges. And of course listed all the college and community stations, community to community saying, Hey, if you give them a call, they'll probably have you on air and, and invite you to play. And right. Because there was no great internet list. So it was this in print thing that you could order out of the back of of maximum rock and roll or other magazines or zines, uh, as your guide and college radio was such a foundation, uh, to all of that and continues to be right. It's, it, it hasn't passed even if the, um, the, the means for finding all of this has changed. So yeah, it's still, still very influential. So I, I, I got, I got one last sort of question here, Jennifer. Um, and that is, so looking back now to before you started and you started this, Seven, 2008. 2008. So eight years ago is when you started doing this. Are there any assumptions that you had about college radio or maybe firmly held opinions about it that now have been sort of debunked? And if not debunked, at least greatly modified as a result of this experience. Um, well, first, I, I wanted to give just a few stats because – we're, we're mainly talking about college radio, but I just want to give a few stats about the stations I toured. Sure. So out of the 100 that I've written up, um, 69 of them were college radio stations. So the majority, um, and 66 of those were in the United States. And then I also visited seven radio stations that were on high school campuses. Maybe six of those could really be characterized as a high school radio station. Um, And then three commercial radio stations that were not affiliated with colleges. And then 19 stations that I would say are community or public radio stations. And that includes some stations that are online only as well. That also includes some LPFM stations. And, And then one religious radio station... And then two stations that aren't really stations, actually. <laughs> so I visited NPR headquarters. That's one of the 100. And NPR does not own any radio stations. Mm-hmm. But I included that in my tour. Um, and then I also visited a pop-up radio station that was run by the Red Bull uh, is it Red Bull Music Academy. Yes. Um, they had a pop-up station in San Francisco. So I wasn't quite sure how to categorize that. So I just wanted to give sort of the lay of the land as to what I visited. Um, And so, you know, before I started touring, I had already had experience in college radio. I had been a DJ at four different stations. And then I also went through DJ training at another station. So I already had this idea that there was quite a variety out there. Um, So... So a lot of things, I guess, aren't surprising because I knew there was a variety. Um, I already knew about, and I guess maybe some of the assumptions I might have are before visiting some stations, I might have an idea of what I'm going to expect. Um, and sometimes that idea is completely wrong. Um, so do you have an example of that? What's yeah, a station well, that completely it, like like 
turn that around? Well, in particular, the Harvard radio station. Um, and so earlier we were talking about this block programming and they, a really big part of their daytime programming is classical and jazz. Um, and so, so I guess I was thinking, and it's a commercially licensed station. So I guess I was thinking, oh, this is not going to feel like some of the stations that I know and love that are more freeform, I guess. Um, but when I got there, I was completely enthralled with the place. Um, it was so much more than what I had expected. So, so what did you expect, though? I'm, 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 I'm kind of curious. Like, like what? I what don't did know. You maybe I just get? maybe I just thought it was going to be more mainstream, or because it was Harvard. Well, because it was classical and jazz. Right. I mean, and I play classical and jazz on my show, so I'm not trying to even diss classical and jazz. Sure, but sure, sure. Maybe I was thinking it was going to be more middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got there, the place is fascinating. It it occupies, I think, an entire basement of a dorm, um, and it has very distinct departments, including classical, including jazz, including uh, what they call the record hospital, which is all the underground music. So by de- department, are, is this in the metaphorical sense, or is there actual like rooms <laughs> dedicated to each of these things? Well, um, so the departments control different parts of the programming schedule, but they also have their own lounges hmm. in the station. So there was a, a room, and essentially the lounges are like record libraries, but they also have you know tables and seating and couches and stuff. So there was the classical lounge that was, I mean, it pretty much looked like a library, like a college library, mm-hmm. as opposed to a record library. It was very mm-hmm. orderly. Um, had some listening stations, lots of vinyl, you know, very pristine looking and some tables. Um, Were there people there in smoking jackets? <laughs> uh, no, there weren't. Um, and then there was a room for the record hospital, which is like the rock <laughs> section. And um, and it looked like a typical, it looked like a stereotypical college radio station, yeah. their lounge. So there was like... You know, bin mail bins full of records, weird pop culture artifacts. I think there was a skull in there, um, stickers on the wall, um, like a really stinky couch, um, records that would probably scare your mother. We should do the uh, olfactory tour of college radio. I know. Just scratch and sniff. <laughs> college radio. There were um, drawings. You know, lots of graffiti on the walls. Um, probably penis drawings. Probably. Uh, <laughs> yes, because they're, they're still 18 years old. Harvard. And, yeah, and that that room was awesome. Like, And I was looking through, like, finding all kinds of familiar records in there. Um, and then another one of their lounges uh, that um, – what is the category? I think it's called The Darker Side or something like that. And um, it's, like, hip-hop and – soul and R&B and that lounge had some of the weirdest uh, album covers that I can't get out of my head, like plastered on the ceiling. Like one of this woman provocatively eating a head of lettuce that like, (laughs) it's like, it haunts me. It really does. So these are community spaces within the radio station that, that had more to do with appreciating music than, and less to do with the making radio. Well, it was, 
it, it was just there were cultures within the overall station, so each had a unique identity based on the genre of music that that people were playing. Right, but so, these were genres that they didn't that didn't make it to the radio. I thought you were telling me because it's oh no, classical no, no. The, and jazz. Yeah, no, these are all played. Oh, they did. Oh, okay, good. They just have programming blocks that are classical yeah. and jazz that are very well established. Ah. Yeah, and so, you know, the DJs from those departments hang out in those different lounges. I want to go hang out in one of those lounges. Um, <laughs> and it was great. It totally surprised me. I I loved it. You know, I'd love to go back there. That's wonderful. Um, so that was, you know, you just, you have to always have an open mind. And that's why I like to visit a lot of stations. And I'm, you know, I like to visit stations that that aren't necessarily like yeah. the one where I DJ at, too. Because... Jennifer- there's oh, always sorry. something interesting. Jennifer, I've noticed because you sent us this beautiful list. I'm sure you'll make it available to the listeners, to the readers at some point of, of every, you know, the stats that you shared with us of yeah. where you visited. And I've noticed that there are, uh, of course, there are gaps. There are geographical gaps. Like you, you haven't been to a station in Texas. I know. So where else, where else do you need to go? Oh my god! Well, I if, need to go if, to every state. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've been to fourteen states plus DC. But which ones, like um, which ones, definitely? Which is actually like better than I thought. You, it was it was a nice could, exercise. Sorry, if you could plan a trip just to tour a college station, what where, would that be? Yeah, where are you what, going? I, I'm sending you to Texas, but that doesn't mean that's where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of stations in Texas I would like to see. You know, I have friends at various stations, so I would like to visit their stations. Um, I've yeah. kind of had a hankering to go to the south um, yeah. because there are a bunch of college radio stations in North Carolina and Virginia, West Virginia. Um, it'd be cool to go see WRUC at Union College because that's one of the stations that claims to be one of the first college radio stations. Um the a station first went on the air there in 1920. Um, I still need to see some stations in California, actually. Yeah. There, there's some college radio stations in the Bay Area that I haven't even seen, and I live in San Francisco. I had a friend that, that got a job uh, for a couple of years at a college station. I think it was in Oklahoma, and it was the first time it occurred to me that there are um, rural college radio stations i mean i've been a city uh, yeah so i mean how much how much of a chance have you had to go to to very small towns um well i was a college radio dj in bowling green ohio so uh-huh. i i had that experience um and a couple years ago i went to kentucky like i i really wanted to go to louisville um and i visited some college radio stations nearby in Lexington. Um, and so that was really cool. I, I visited a commercial station in a very small town in Indiana, in Oxford, Indiana. And this is one of those things where I was driving with my family on a road trip. And I think my husband spotted the radio station sign. And I think he was probably like, do I utter this out loud? (laughs) You know, like she's probably going to make us go and stop and see this station. Um, and so I said, Oh, can we go back? And we happened to arrive right as the station owner was driving up. And it was this small, small town station. The owner owned like a couple stations in the area. Um, So that was really cool to see this small town station. Um, I've also been to a community radio station in a very small town in California. 
in Philo, which mm. is in Mendocino County. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been to the small town rural stations, but, but yeah, I mean, there's so many places I haven't been. Um, I've got a long list. It looks like I might have the opportunity to see some stations in Virginia next year. So that would be cool. Well, people should lobby and they can lobby. They can help to send you, right? I mean, you know, there, there are uh, in many cases bands now do these tours where, where uh, they get folks to kind of uh, get the money together so that they know they'll get paid when they show up, right? Uh, you know, or at least have their expenses covered. Uh, you know, folks should lobby. Uh, we got the Jennifer Tours, our county, our state, our city uh, <laughs> radio station tours can, can happen there. I know that would be, that would be great. And I definitely get suggestions all the time. Two people yesterday suggested the Milwaukee school of engineering. Um, and, and that station has been on my radar for a while too. So that would be a cool one to visit. So Wisconsin trip. Yeah. Could be there. And, and there are amazing stations in Minneapolis and all around Minnesota. I just, uh, it, it, well, it just, it's, it's not a, it's not a matter of what, what you want to see. It's just a matter of sheer pragmatics, getting yourself there and having the time and the, and the money to do it. it. It's such a gift that you've given to radio so far to document these hundred stations. Uh, I really want to make sure that, that, uh, this, uh, knowledge and and this uh, documentation survives um, and is and is out there. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of a noble effort. Um, oh, and and before we close, I I gave my daughter, my ten year old daughter, sort of an assignment. I asked her because she's been on, she's been to maybe a handful of stations with me. Right. So I was asking her what the weirdest things that she'd seen. Oh yeah. So I thought people might want to know from a 10-year-old's perspective. Um, <laughs> and you might notice the theme. So the things that she mentioned were penis drawings, <laughs> naked mannequin. Naked mannequin. Naked poster. <laughs> boob drawings. <laughs> old candy. <laughs> and bad words on doors. <laughs> I, I want to know about the old candy. Um. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think at one station, I don't even know where she saw the old candy. Maybe she saw candy somewhere and was interested in it because kids are interested in candy. <laughs> and perhaps the person at the station said, oh, you don't want that. That's pretty old. <laughs> so the kind of so, – so that sort of lends to the fact that uh, in how a, uh, a college radio station is often like a punk house and that there may be stuff that's found yeah. its way there. Community space. That goes untouched for a long time. And Not after a often while, spring cleaned. Nobody wants to touch yeah. it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was one trip where there was some, uh, a box of donuts. I know that was also very intriguing to my daughter. <laughs> to a 10-year-old. That's great. It's great to see this through the eyes of, of, of a 10-year-old. And, and often, you know, it, it, it's hard to kind of put on those that fresh perspective sometimes and see, I'm sure, to see stations with eyes that haven't seen 99 other stations, right? And to try and look for uh, how something stands out on the one hand, but also not to forget about the things which are, which are still unique uh, about college radio in general. Yeah, it's true. You know, on the one hand, I see things at stations that the people at the station have stopped noticing. Right. Um, but then, yeah, the global things, um, I probably, yeah, I don't really give it a second thought. Although sometimes it's like a checklist that I have in my head, like, okay, 
do they have that Leo Blaze sign? I'm kind of looking for the handmade silver sign with the call letters. Um, and actually, I tallied it up. I think I've seen 20 or more Leo Blaze <laughs> signs. Was which very is productive during that period. Pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're all handmade, cut out, out of cardboard in 3D. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Oh, and you know, something else that came up this week, people were talking about um, college radio mascots. Do stations have mascots? And I saw, I've seen a few at Radio K at um, University of Minnesota. They actually had a costume that was like this fuzzy <laughs> pale blue K. And the guy touring me around actually put on the costume to show me. Yeah, how did that costume. smell? <laughs> it didn't smell. It was okay, perfect. good. You're not, not going to make a scratch and sniff version of Radio K's mascot. I know. Today. It had white little gloves, um, you know, like band wow. gloves. Oh, if that, if that mascot could talk. That's pretty wow. awesome. And then at um, The Wizard, WZRD, um, at in Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago, they have this, I mean, it actually looks pretty stinky. They have this wizard kind of stuffed thing that... Um, Anytime there's a visitor, like a visiting band, they have to take a picture with this really oh, weird looking yeah. wizard. <laughs> and when you were at WEFT in Champaign-Urbana, did we show you Wefty? I don't, I don't know. I don't remember that. So and maybe it's disintegrated, but Wefty is a big paper mache and cardboard old timey radio, um, but with arms and legs. Right. Oh, you know, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it was probably shoved up on top of something because it had to be out of the way. We It was sort of a built-in studio and at least at the time going back – I haven't been there in about uh, five, six years – up on top. And one year – I should go dig out these photos if I can. Um, around 1995, we always participated in the uh, local 4th of July parade and we made Wefty's costumes – so there's at least six of us mm. who made them out of uh, like uh, foam, uh, you know, kind of like you might use to underneath a carpet uh, and spray paint them brown and, and arms and legs and our heads pointing out. Of course, that day it was about 95 degrees and about 80% humidity, it, but it was terrible. But we have these pictures of us all dressed as wefties. Unfortunately, wow, they all like whatever paint and glue we used was was not good for the foam and they didn't last a year. They all disintegrated so there was no one could go as wefty. I think my one friend had one he managed to preserve one somehow and he went the next year, but we never uh never I don't I'm not sure that, that Wefty has been animated as an actual uh mascot like Radio K. Uh like the K of Radio K has, but uh I, I hadn't thought about radio station mascots in that way before. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look back at my at my tour report from WEF to see. Um, that also reminds me, W-L-O-Y at Loyola in Baltimore. They participate in some Baltimore parade every year, and they do like an elaborate float. <laughs> so it's it's amazing the creativity at college radio stations yeah. and community radio stations. That's great. Well, Jennifer, um, I'm going to put in a real quick pitch that, uh, you know, for folks to help us continue to do all this sort of work. Uh, I think, you know, it often seems like, hey, it's just a blog. It's just a podcast. But there's so much more work that goes in to uh, research and then in your case, often travel. But we all have done travel to, to conferences and to other stations as well. Um, we could really use your help. Um, none of us 
draws a salary right now. We can keep the lights on, which means uh, we can keep the SoundCloud account. Really mundane things. Keep the uh, web host uh, and keep a good enough web host so that if we do have a big day, the site still stays available and doesn't go down or or so when we – someone tries to DDoS our, our podcast and we get 36,000 hits in one day. It didn't become unavailable to everyone. That really happened. Um, and uh, so we could use your help. And we, we ask either you can make a one-time donation or uh, we ask, really, we, it's great if you can make an ongoing donation. Uh, $1, $5, $10 every month. And that, what that does is it gives us a certain amount of money we can expect, we know, and helps us to budget and make decisions about how we might be able to help Jennifer do any of, any of her trips, or we might be able to expand this podcast to become a regular weekly radio show. Jennifer needs to go to the to the Southwest. Yeah, she yes, so yes, I've exactly. Yes, needs to go I to know. the South, New Southwest. New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Oklahoma. They're so not on the list yet. We could use your help. So I go know. to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Um, and you can support us through our Patreon campaign by giving just a little bit every month. Uh, it's so little, in some cases, less than what a coffee might cost, but it, it adds up for us. Or you can give a one-time donation via PayPal. We'd really appreciate it We that you consider uh, helping us out. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And Jennifer, number 100, will is up on the website now as people listen to – uh, to this podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And then those stats, are you going to do like a separate uh, kind of report for that? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? I think go ahead and do a second post. You know, yeah, we'll just publish it the same. Well, it'll be published the same time. Of course, you know, we're recording this ahead of time. That's how the magic happens. Yeah. So it all can be published right. at the I same found, time. I found the list fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think that's yeah. right. Sure. I'll do, so, I'll do some sort of report. Um, there's a lot that we didn't talk about. That's, in my little private report, it was a good exercise, and and you know I still have a bunch of stations yet to write up. Right. So, one hundred is not the end. No, one hundred and one is is on the horizon. So that's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for all this work and for sharing it with us, Jennifer, and for answering our uh, sometimes uh, difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's always good to be challenged, and um, and and yes, I'm. It's been great. It's been great having the podcast as an extension of Radio Survivor because I think we get to explore things like these radio tours in even more depth, which I love. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's caused me to, of course, engage with them in a whole new way as well. It's been uh, really, really fun. And I think, Eric, I think you've gotten quite a bit out of it. You you talk about and open up new worlds for you here. Yeah, I I can't stop thinking about about the things we talk about uh, once a week. It, it 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 stays with me all week long, uh, and 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 for any listener, uh, if if this sort of gets you thinking, there are any memories you'd love to share about your experiences at a Collinger Community Station or your experiences right now. Uh, we, we recently shared a, a piece by uh, a reader and listener, uh, Rachel Duchak, who talked about a station that she has now started volunteering at, at Low Power FM Station in Morro Bay, California. It's a wonderful little piece that she'd written for her own blog, and she pointed me to it via email, and uh, I asked, you know, can we share it at radiosurvivor.com? Because, um, you know, we've been around a while, so we actually have quite a few readers. And that's certainly we open up to anybody if you would like to appear on the podcast or you'd like to write a short piece for Radio Survivor, we certainly welcome uh, it. We, we like it to be a community of people it, we, as much as we can. We, we don't want it to be a one-way street. 
Um, so anything you, you, you can share is, is greatly appreciated, and it means that you're sharing with a much broader audience of people who, who love radio as much as you do. Just drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. That is our email address, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at Radio Survivor. We're also on Facebook as Radio Survivor. Many ways to contact us, and we try really hard to, uh, to pay attention and write back as well. Any parting words, Jennifer, uh, after uh, sharing your 100th uh, radio tour? Uh, well, I just, I can't wait. Well, I want to thank everybody who has opened up their stations oh, to wow, me. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's no small feat to uh, get in touch with somebody. So I really appreciate people who have taken the time. Sometimes it's early on a weekend morning. Sometimes it's late at night. And, um, you know, I always have a great time. And, and uh, people often have pronouncements that there's not much to see but there's always a ton to see and yeah i'm just really grateful for everyone's generosity with their time and with their words it's been it's been great and uh i'm kind of curious how many stations i'll visit in my lifetime <laughs> well no end in sight no end in sight I know. <laughs> so i guess we, we have to keep podcasting too then <laughs> I know. Yeah, when will we get to 200? I don't know. Wow. It took eight years to get to 100. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, some of the stats I shared with the two of you have to do with the number of stations I visited in a, in a given year. Um, and, you know, there's some year, there was one year where I visited one station, but then more recently it's kind of ramped up and I visited 24 stations in 2014. Oh and my 20- gosh. Yeah, and twenty two last year. I just, I just had a. That's more stations in one year than I've been to. Period. Yeah, I just had a fantasy that uh, that you that you'll be able to retire, and then the number of stations you visit will uh, will skyrocket. <laughs> because, Eventually, I'll have to get you into the Guinness yeah, books. We'll, we'll, you'll just get into a van with your husband and uh, <laughs> and travel around and, and it's station tours until until he asks for a break. Wow. I know. Yeah, the family has been. I was trying to figure out how many stations they'd been to. Um, you know, my husband's maybe been to eight or ten with me, oh, and my daughter maybe five to eight. Um, but yeah, it, it, when we start to think about family vacations, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm sort of plotting um, how many stations I might be able to visit. You know, because it's hard. It's I, I'm really focused and. I spend maybe an hour and a half at a station, ideally, so it can take up a lot of time. So it, you know, it can be frustrating to go out of town and not visit a station, but it happens. <laughs> mm, well, uh, let's just hope that there's uh, more on the horizon here. Uh, thanks again, Jennifer. Thank you, Eric. Thank every. I uh, thank you to everyone uh, for listening and for uh, for helping to support our work here and uh and share it ear support ear support exactly (laughs) all right have a good week everybody all right thanks bye-bye